right, Malachi chapter 2. We are gonna, we're actually going to cover most of chapter 2. Um, I know the last couple of weeks we've been moving slowly over uh, small portions. I, I don't want us to lose, by quick way of review, I don't want us to lose the, um, the context that Malachi is very much painting a picture. God, I, so much of, there, there are many times where prophets are, Prophets or, or writers in the Old Testament are the ones challenging people. I mean, Malachi doesn't really say almost anything until the end of chapter 3. It is just the word of the Lord through Malachi. It says the, the oracle um, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi may have been a person or what, or what it doesn't matter. He was just the conduit for God's word. God is speaking to the people. And God is painting a picture through this oracle in Malachi that, that there is, there is a difference between those who are my people and those who are not my people. And it's not an ethnic difference. It is not a common ancestor difference. It's not a culture difference. It's not even necessarily a going through the motions, practice religious rights difference. There is a heart difference that distinguishes my people from those who are not my people. No matter what you look like on the outside, no matter who your ancestors were, you, no matter what family you come from, what side of the tracks you grew up on, it doesn't matter. There are God's people and not God's people. And God is painting a very clear picture in the book of Malachi, if we will see it, that there is a difference. And it is, on, it is incumbent on all of us to examine our hearts and be sure. Um, as we look in chapter 2, We'll read it here in a moment, but I, I want to I point out that, that chapter 2 is, uh, I mean, th- the whole book has a series of indictments or, um, or uh, yeah, I mean, that's really the best word, indictments from God. God kind of accusing, I guess, but basically pointing out to the nation, here are specific areas where you are falling far short and refusing to acknowledge it in your faith and practice. And... Chapter 2 is specifically addressed to the leaders within the cultures, and he, and, and he starts with the religious leaders and then moves on to the family leaders, which are the most basic, fundamental building blocks of a society. Now, whether society acknowledges the religious influence or the importance of the, that, the religious building block or even the family building block, um, it is there. And the government cannot replace that. And to the extent that the, that the church or the family abdicates to the government the, um, the responsibility to raise up our children, the responsibility to care for the people God tells us to care for, that is our own failing. God has still called us to these things. And so let's look here at um, Malachi chapter 2. We'll read um, through um, verse 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. I want to pause there. We'll read the rest of it um, when, we, when we get to it. Um, 
but I don't want to muddy the waters of this, this section. He is speaking to the religious leaders. Yes, he's speaking specifically to priests who filled a, whose function was not exactly the same as pastors, elders, and teachers in the church today. There was a whole sacrificial system that we um, no longer uh, have to practice. But broadly, he is speaking to the religious leaders, those that represent and teach the people who God is, about God, truth of God. I want us to look carefully here and recognize that God is very, very, very concerned that how he is talked about, what is taught about him as truth, really needs to be what is true. And um, we we see several things in here. Um, One, he says, I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. There is, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself in my notes here. Um, This is specific, but the warning extends to all in spiritual authority or in a position to teach spiritual things. There's something foundational here that we, we can't, we don't get to make it up. We must be students of God's truth. And, and this is what I mean by that. Truth is a thing to be discovered and then submitted to. It is not a thing to be molded and fashioned to our liking. This is something that, um, that I feel like, and I'm so glad that we're, we're going through Malachi, because that this indictment is just as relevant today as it has always been. Adjusting our beliefs does not change the truth. I, I see this often in conversations, and, and in our, not just in our culture, but even in conversations with, with people that I know. There's this justification that it, you know, they'll describe something that is generally considered by um, people that conservatively understand Scripture to be against Scripture, but then justify themselves by saying, but it's okay because I've adjusted what I believe about that. And so I've, I've worked that out. As if believing that the sky is green, in fact, makes it green. It does not. Adjusting my beliefs about what God believes, about what God says, what he thinks about my behavior and my faith and practice does not change his truth. Do you see, this is, this is so, so foundational. Uh, we see some of this in, in the difference between um, the attitude or, or, or thinking of, for instance, the Catholic Church versus the Protestant church in doctrine. The Catholic church, their, their ideas is that, is that doctrine is something that the clergy develops over time, taking into consideration many things, including culture and attitudes of the time and things like that. But we, you know, we, we develop doctrine from Scripture, and the Protestant church believes that, no, we discover doctrine we don't have the luxury or the privilege or the responsibility to, to um, develop it. It has already been defined by God, and it is on us to discover it and submit to it. I, I bring that up because, you know, recently, uh, within the last couple of months, um, I don't know how many of you follow Catholic, uh, you know, news and, uh, and things like that, um, but, you know, the, the, the Pope, this, this gets relevant because the, the influence of Christianity on a global scale is affected by things that the Catholic Church does. We, we have many, 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 many differences. Um, but this highlights something about how what we think about it does not change what is true about it. Recently, the, the, the Pope, you know, um, released a, I don't know, a fatwa? No, just kidding. That's a different religion, but same idea. Um, released, you know, an, an idea that uh, you know that, that even in an edict, I guess that that priests within the Catholic faith are are now not only permitted but even instructed to um, to perform a, a some kind of blessing rite. I don't know how this works, but some kind of a blessing 
on people who are living an open and active homosexual lifestyle, there is now official Catholic Church blessing for those individuals. There's all kinds of things wrong with that. Um, I don't, um, we, we do not believe that, that there is such thing as priests aside from the one great high priest because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's in Scripture, and I don't know how you get around that. But, um, so we don't believe that, that, you know, I don't have the power to give you God's blessing. God does. And I'm not vested with that. Um, but this idea that, that God clearly in his word speaks against certain behavior and certain lifestyle choices, certain things which, were, which reject his creation order, um, but now, you know, cultural attitudes have changed, and so the doctrine can catch up, and so we've we developed doctrine, and now it's okay. It used to be really not okay, and now it's, it's really okay. I, I point that out because that seems ridiculous, that, a, that an institutional church would, would do that. It is not less ridiculous that we do that in our own lives. Remember when I was a youth pastor speaking to, um, to a young man in my youth group who, um, and, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so, one thing I'm, I don't miss is, uh, is getting, the, getting the reports of what somebody posted on social media, and you should probably talk to them about that. I mean, it's, it's true, but I just, that's a, I don't really like spending time in the cesspool because you come out smelling like it. Um, but it was basically somebody in, the, somebody in their friend group had, uh, had announced that they um, were going to be living a, a homosexual lifestyle, and his comment was, good for you. And, I, and my statement to him was, you you, you we can't do that. We cannot say good for you when God says bad for you. We cannot say, we cannot affirm and celebrate when God says that, that, is, that is sin and unacceptable. We can't do that with anybody's sin. Not any more than we can congratulate someone for uh, successfully pulling off a, a, a bank robbery. God has, God has condemned this. We cannot celebrate this. God's truth is immutable. It does not change. It does not, God does not care what cultural attitudes are. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this because what we find, the nation of Israel in this time, having been back in the nation, back within their borders, back within the city, they've rediscovered, you know, they've got the, they got the temple rebuilt, they, got the, they found the book of the law and King, with King Josiah, they read that and they were um, briefly convicted by it, and then they, they got the, the walls of their city built back up, and now they really felt like, you know, we got something going on here, but it didn't take long before that was done. And cultural attitudes had kind of changed. They'd spent 70 years in a different culture. They'd kind of broadened their horizons. They'd been a little bit more enlightened. You know, they used to only know, their, their culture used to only know their own culture, but now they, they, they spent some time, they traveled the world a little bit, spent some time over in, in Iraq and Iran and, uh, and, and had some, you know, just different attitudes about what was okay. And the feeling was, you know, maybe God's growing up too. And broadening his horizons and changing his ideas. And God is sternly saying, no, no, I, I didn't. And I already know about that stuff. And I'm, I'm not. I'm not okay with it. One of the... One of the things that is, that is, is such, it is such an indictment against, there, there's two things, and we'll get to these. There, there's two things he mentions, he'll mention in the next section about, um, about the marriages that were a problem. One, they were intermarrying with people who did not believe in God. In fact, who served other gods. I, I don't want you to read it and be like, wow, God, was, God really wanted them to um, not marry other ethnic groups. It had nothing to do it was not about the color of their skin or their ancestors. It was about their belief system. 
And any of you that are married know that when you marry someone, you generally get a, an entire package that comes with them that includes family. Some of us, for some of us, that is a great asset to our lives. When you marry someone who does not share your beliefs or your value system, and their family doesn't either, you have, you have joined yourself to an incredible liability. However, once you are joined to them, you're joined to them. And the other thing was, um, was faithlessness to one another. Divorce. Um, abandonment. All of that. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But, but here's the thing. The people are doing that and the priests are blessing them. They are coming to offer sacrifices and worship and the priests are saying... It's okay. You don't even worry about this. That's your that's your life out there. This is your religious. This different categories. We're in a different container now. Compartmentalize. You got your work life. You got your family life. You got your church life. That stuff doesn't need to spill over into this. God wants you to offer sacrifices. Come offer sacrifices. That's fine. Um, but God says the sacrifice, the 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 acceptable sacrifices to God are a broken spirit or obedience in the heart, submission. It's not the fat of rams. It's not that he's hungry and he needs us to feed him. It's not that at all. And so this indictment against the teachers and and preachers, the, the priests in their time... Is reflect, it, is, it is a reflection of this broader thing that we, you know, if we just adjust what we believe, we used to teach that was wrong, but now we're okay with it. That doesn't work. God's word clearly spells out how God is to be worshipped, how God is to be served, how we are to think about, believe about, and, and interact with and worship God. And this reminder is, um, just so you know, I know y'all stopped caring about it, but I still care about that. That's really, really, really important. And I hope you can see how really, really relevant that is today. It doesn't matter if cultural attitudes toward sexuality, marriage, divorce, homosexuality, transgenderism, Abortion. It doesn't matter what the cultural attitude of these things are. God has spoken about them, and he does not change. And it is, it is on us to discover the truth. If we don't know, if we don't know already, it is on us to discover what has God spoken about this and what has he said. And if I'm not in alignment with that, I must change. The but the attitude is, if there's not alignment, I'll just adjust how I understand it. Well, that's not culturally relevant anymore. That was for, yeah, they didn't understand this or that, and so now, now that, you know, I get it then, but, but it's okay now. No, adjusting our belief system doesn't make the sky green, and it doesn't make sin okay. Uh, we're not going to cover this verse in this section, but... At the end of this chapter, verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. He does not. And the idea that we can live our lives however we want and then come to church and worship and have a real intimate relationship with God is absolute falsehood. And it is, we, we, are, we are deceived when we believe that. If we believe that, because we, we, we either think God doesn't care how I live my life or we think God, has, um, God doesn't know how I live my life. And neither of those things are true. Another thing that he says here that I want to point out here, he's talking about his, uh, we don't have time to go and look at the covenant with Levi and all of that, but, but um, there, there was a covenant of perpetual priesthood for the tribe of Levi and specifically the descendants of 
Phineas, and if you want to read a really fun story, it's in Numbers chapter 25, and I'll leave, you, I'll leave that with you. Um, <clears throat> Phineas boldly stood up when the cultural attitude of the day had completely changed toward marrying outside of their faith and inviting into their homes and families um, thoughts about God and about other gods that were contrary to Scripture. When the cultural attitude was totally fine with it, Phineas took a bold stand. Um, And uh, like I said, jot that down and that'll be some fun afternoon reading for you. Um, But he goes on here to say, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I I get the privilege as as the pastor... The, the elder here who is, who is charged with the responsibility of the regular teaching ministry, I get the privilege of being paid so that I don't have to spend all of my time working another job. I am able to devote my time to studying the Word of God so that I can unpack it and teach it to you because, like it says here, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should look to him for instruction from the Lord. And what part of that means is people should be able to. And so affording one elder the, the ability to devote his time to the study and teaching of God's word serves the church best. And that's, that's the reason for that. It's a, it's a responsibility and it's a heavy responsibility, but it's also a privilege for me. And so... <clears throat> But how do we do that? One of the things that he says down here in in verse 8 and 9, he says, You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. He goes on, he says, Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. You don't need to turn there, and you might be familiar with this verse. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, Paul writes, For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There we see the exact same thing in the New Testament. This this struggle of this tension between the faithful teaching of God's word and the people who are following the cultural attitudes of the time. And if you think that had just happens other places, um, we lag about 10-ish years behind Canada, and Canada is already jailing pastors for speaking against homosexuality. Let that sink in. And so what is the easy thing to do? Well, cultural attitudes have changed about this. I'm not going to say it's okay. I just won't. I'll just stop. We get to those verses, I'll just skip over them. That's how it starts, and then and then we then we start taking the teeth out of them and, and and softening them, and then we start reinterpreting them. We cannot do that. And and I want to say that there, there may be times that I stand up here and teach things that uh, that are, are offensive to you. And to the extent that those things are me saying things that are my opinion and that um, are not directly from God's word or are not well thought out comments, I apologize. But to the extent that they come from God's word and are consistent with the faithful teaching of sound doctrine, I cannot apologize. I have to teach what is in the word of God. That is, that is my solemn responsibility as a teacher. When I study God's word, I read things that, I, that make me uncomfortable. And the discomfort comes from the idea that it would be a lot easier in my life if I didn't have to make any changes. It'd be a lot easier to adjust my belief system than adjust my behavior or my thinking. But God's word 
It says, keep my ways and do not show partiality in your instruction. There's a temptation as, you know, as, we, as we counsel with, with people within our church or, or, or outside of our church. It, it's, it would be, there's the temptation to come across something that Scripture says that is hard, that needs to be said, that is right there in the text. And I, and I look out and, and see someone in the congregation and think, oh, man, if I say that, he's gonna, they're, they're going to think, that person's going to think that I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, I'm talking right to them. That's a temptation. I can't do that. We have to be willing to squirm in the discomfort of the conviction of God's Holy Spirit in our lives when we're confronted with his word. The next section here, verses 10 through 16 He says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is yes, and is referring to God as their Father and Creator. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. I'm in verse 11 here, if you're following along. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, or or it could also be while you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This second two-part warning is aimed at marriages. The family is the fundamental, the foundational unit in all creation. God created all the stuff and all the critters and all the things that grow, and then he created people and immediately formed a society. And he formed that society by performing the first marriage. He didn't just create two individuals, one male and one female, and they figured out how to get along mostly. No, they, he created male and female and then created the family. Because that is the foundational unit of all society. And so this, this is speaking to that foundational unit. You've, you've married outside your faith which has undermined that foundation, and you have been faithless to the covenant of marriage. Uh, We haven't gotten to this verse in Hebrews yet, but there's a verse in Hebrews, I believe it's in chapter 4, it says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. There there needs to be, and and remember, God is speaking here, He he is He is drawing the line between the people of God and the people not of God. And he's saying the people who are actually the people of God have attitudes toward marriage that are different than the other people around them that are not the people of God. He's painting a big picture here. In other words, if this is your attitude toward marriage, that is not not reflective of the people of God. We need to examine ourselves and make sure that, that our, um, 
our belief system is consistent with who we say we are. This is, this is so important. The reason why their sin, he says Judah's, Judah's sin has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord in verse 11. Judah has been faithless. Abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. The reason why their, their sin profaned the sanctuary is they were continuing to sacrifice to God despite their sin. When we try to have it both ways, live in open sin over here and approach God for blessing over here, we are treating God as though he can be deceived. But it is we who are deceived. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, that will he also reap. It is a mockery of God when we think we can live a certain way over here and God doesn't notice or doesn't care. God has literally said, I notice and I care. And so it's a mockery of God when we live as though that's not the case. We cannot have that both ways. The couple that lives together and comes to church should be very uncomfortable. And by lives together, I mean not married. You get what I'm saying. Um, I, I live together with, uh, with Kara, but we are, you know, 15 years. Um. No, when we are living in open sin, I mean, newsflash, nobody in here is perfect. Everybody comes to church and has sin in their lives, okay? We can, like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like, smack everybody in the face, face here, but when we have made, we've made conscious choices, I know this is wrong and I don't care and I'm going to do it anyway. And in fact, I've actually just decided it's not wrong anymore, so that means God's fine with it because I'm sure he agrees with my redefinition. Um, that attitude does not fly. The, the open, sinful lifestyle choice should result, for those that are God's people, should result in conviction and serious discomfort. So if you can do that and worship, and it doesn't even bother you, we just we got some real questions here. The, 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 the word of God raises real questions about whether or not you are actually the people of God or if you're just hanging around them, hoping that by proximity, their blessing will rub off on you or something like that. This whole thing, in, in verse 13, that's what he's talking about. You, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. He's, in in, a, in the, the language work there, it could be while you do that. You, you are simultaneously doing this. You're coming to church and worshiping and, you know, maybe that's singing and crying or maybe that's, you know, you know you're praying and reading, you know, reading the Bible and just read an article this week that I won't go way into, but it was some, you know, what it's like to be the stay-at-home girlfriend. And, uh, you know, I, I was reading stuff like this because it reflects the attitudes of our culture toward marriage and family. And uh, was shocked to find that in, like, the first couple of, uh, of uh, paragraphs, they're going through what their, what their normal day looks like. It included um, getting up early, making some coffee, and sitting in an online prayer group. Blows my mind. I sometimes wonder, at first I was like, how can that, like, here's someone living in open sin that, that like, makes time in their schedule for that, and it's, like, hard to get anybody to show up to a small group or, you know, whatever. It's like thinking about that. But then I realized, well, wait a minute. If, I'm, if you're living in open sin, um, one thing that might make you feel better is if you feel like you kind of threw God a bone and, you know, it's kind of like putting a... Makes you, makes you feel a little bit better. Makes you feel like, hey, you know, I think me and God are good because you know, I am doing this over here. But I'm also doing this for him, so it's probably evens out. And um, Malachi 2.13 makes pretty clear that it does not. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he, um, Peter writes and talks about, talks about living in having open, unconfessed sin or... Um, 
um, particularly within, within the marriage relationship, disunity and um, conflict that uh, it hinders our prayers. First um, Peter 3, 7, he says, uh, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I don't know about you, but I can speak to this. Um, if you've ever been through a season in marriage in which it was just marked by constant conflict, you will look at that time and very likely also identify a time when your prayer life and your relationship with God was just as dry and non-existent as any other time. Because when we make a covenant before God, he has called us to something, and it is impossible. We, we, a Christian marriage is a, is a vow and covenant made before God. It is inviting God into that relationship. It is a three-way relationship between the husband and wife and also God. And when we try to leave God out of it, or we try to leave the spouse out of it, what we find is our relationship with the other suffers always. When he talks about being faithless to the wife of your youth, which he is describing there, he is not just talking about people cheating on their spouse. He's talking about a a holistic view of the covenant of marriage and not being faithful to that covenant. It's not just about sexual faithfulness. It is also about fulfilling the vows we make to one another. Those vows of provision and protection. The vows of leadership and and mutual submission. Those vows of doing and sharing all parts of life together. The vows of forsaking all others in all the various forms. We can be faithless to one another. Oh, the, the what did he say in first, in first Peter? To honor your wife. We can, we can be faithless to one another in many, many, many ways. And, and, and I want to, I'm, I'm going to kind of close with this point. Um, God cares so deeply about what our marriages look like. In fact, I believe that this entire section here, verses 10 through 16, he certainly cares about the marriage and the relationship between the husband and the wife, but the one, of, one of the principal reasons he cares so much about that That relationship and what that means is because that relationship is supposed to be a picture that demonstrates what God is like. Everything in Scripture is God revealing himself to man from creation all the way to judgment. Everything in Scripture communicates something about the person of God, who he is, what he is like to people. One of those things is the covenant of marriage. It is, it is supposed to be this picture of what God is like. And when we are faithless to one another in any of those forms, it, is, it distorts that picture of God. Similarly, the priests. The priests are supposed to faithfully teach the words of God to the people. And when the priests start, start to adjust along with culture, they are distorting the picture of God. We're gonna, later this year, we're going to do a series called Bad Theology, so 2024, uh, come to Neighborhood Church for Bad Theology. Um, we're going we're to spend three weeks going through Job, looking at the things that Job's friends say about God that sound really spiritual, and then you find out God is really upset with them because they have not accurately represented truth about God. They have spoken things about me that are not true. God has given ways even to us to represent him 
in this world. That's what we close all of our services by saying, let's go and be his witnesses. We are his representatives in this world. We must represent him, not just well, accurately. So we must be students of who God really is and what he really is like because we do not want to be in the position of misrepresenting God. He makes a point here in verse, at the end of verse 15, he says, And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. The point about the marriage relationship and the, and the, the, the interfaith relationships and the, and the divorce factor and, and, and all of this is it, it distills down to its effect on the future of this society, which are its children. I, I, I don't often do this, um, but I, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from a, a sermon that I listened to some time ago by John Piper. Um, I have assigned this sermon as counseling homework before, and I would commend it to you. It is a two-part sermon called Marriage is for Making Children, Disciples of Christ. And he, he makes this point. I'm going to read it just like he says it here. He says, The most fundamental task of a mother and father is to show God to the children Children know their parents before they know God. This is a huge responsibility and should cause every parent to be desperate for God-like transformation. The children will have years of exposure to what the universe is like before they know there is a universe. They will experience the kind of authority there is in the universe, the kind of justice there is in the universe, and the kind of Love there is in the universe before they meet the God of authority, the God of justice, the God of love who created and rules the universe. Children are absorbing from dad his strength and leadership and protection and justice and love. And they're absorbing from mother her care and nurture and warmth and intimacy and justice and love. And of course, all of these things overlap. And all of this is happening before the child knows anything about God. But it is profoundly all about God. The child will be able to recognize God for who he really is in his authority and love and justice because mom and dad have together shown the child what God is like. The chief task of parenting is to know God for who he is in many attributes, and then to live in such a way with our children that we help them see and know God. And of course, that will involve directing them always to the infallible portrait of God in the Bible. That's uh, <clears throat> I decided I couldn't say it better, and so I would just quote him and actually give him credit for it. Um, that, that, is, that is such a powerful picture. And when we distort that picture, we communicate either explicitly or implicitly, to our children, and not just our own children, to children. We're in a church together. We are all impacting one another. We communicate to those looking at our marriage that God is a certain way and God says, I'm not that way. When we decide to abandon one another, That distorts the picture of God. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When we choose to say, I can't do this anymore, God says, I am not like that. I suffer long. I am long-suffering. I am patient. I am merciful. When we refuse to forgive, God says, I am not like that. I am merciful and gracious. When we choose any number of things that distort the picture of God that marriage is supposed to be, it upsets him. And it's not just because, hey, I really wanted you guys to make this work. No, it's because that was a, that's a picture of me, 
Not like it was supposed to be. No, it is a picture of me. And you've taken this beautiful picture of me and spray painted obscene things on it. And I am not like that. Don't portray me that way. It is a stern warning to guard. In fact, he says right here to guard ourselves in our spirits and let none of us be faithless to the wife of our youth. If you're here this morning and you don't have a spouse or you don't have a spouse anymore, my purpose is not to beat you up or to you know, make you sit here for things that don't apply to you. There are many ways that we represent God in this world. Marriage is one of them. The Apostle Paul was never called to that. And so, you're not alone, even if you feel alone. Many, <clears throat> the God, the, God speaks to, to everyone in Scripture, across many different cultures, across many different um, walks of life, vocations, stages of life. And he speaks to all of us. And I want to bring us back to our attitude toward truth. The truth about God must be that it is to be discovered. When we open the pages of God's word, we must have the attitude that says, I think this, but I might be wrong. And if I discover that I'm wrong, I'm going to change the way I think. And if it means I have to change the way I'm living, I'm going to do that too because because the truth about God matters more than anything else. I think that the way I'm living pleases God, but if I discover that it does not please God, I will change that. That has to be our attitude. James chapter 4 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You say, but, but my life is hard. You, you don't know my spouse. You don't know what we've been through. You don't know the mountain in front of us that we can't climb. You don't know the stuff that we can't get over. If, if you knew, then maybe you, God didn't really give us a whole bunch of exceptions. In fact, even the exceptions of, of sexual immorality that we see even in the New Testament is, is an allowance God still is not happy about that. It is still a distortion of the picture of God. Marriage is hard. Fifteen years of marriage to me has shown care of that. <clears throat> and we've been through some hard things. We've been through some things that if we didn't have the kids, we might not have uh, decided to put in the work. But you know what? We look back on it all and decide it was so worth the work. Because I'll close with this. The man who hates and divorces says the God, the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Maybe you've been through divorce. Maybe you've been, yeah, if you're a child from a family in which there was divorce, then you've been through it. Was there a lot more peace in your life after that? It turns out that that eternal covenant of marriage doesn't, um, the relationship doesn't end, especially if, if there's kids together. Guess what? You can decide not to be married to each other anymore, but you're part of each other's lives for the rest of your life. And what we find uh, most often is that um, that violence can show up in a lot of different ways, uh, first and most often with words, certainly with attitudes. It follows us around the rest of our lives when we choose that path. Covers his garment with violence. God's not necessarily just saying, I'm going to come after you if you do that. No, he's saying... Outside that boundary is danger. Outside that boundary is not flourishing. 
outside that boundary is not my will for you. Stay within it. A hard message. And uh, I, I, I don't like to stand up here and feel like I'm just, you know, punching someone repeatedly in the face, um, you know, as, as Ethan would say, um, with, my, with my sermon, and, it, and that is not only my purpose. This section of Malachi, God is laying out the problems. Now, in the next section, chapter 3, he's going to lay out solutions. The people are going to ask, how can we come back to you? And God will lay out the restoration piece of it. And so I want to encourage you that this is one sermon in a series that is not all going to be like this. But it is really important that we don't cower away from and shy away from God's word even when it says hard things to us. Because God has laid out for us in his word the path to human flourishing, the best, the way that we can be experience, you want to experience your best life now? Read God's word and live within his will. Don't redefine it. It might be hard. That doesn't mean it's not best. To represent God well is best always. And there is blessing for that. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word challenges us. You know the temptations that we face and the difficulties that life brings our way, and yet your word does not apologize for your will or your instruction or your expectations. And God, ultimately, we, are, we have to come to the realization that we can't do it perfectly on our own. We can't really even do it very well. And it doesn't mean you're okay with it. It does mean that you've provided a way for us to be made right with you. Because without the blood of Jesus washing away our sin and clothing us with his righteousness, we are like the priests in this passage with the dung and the unclean residue of sacrifices and dead things smeared all over our faces. We are unacceptable. And only the blood of Christ can wash those things away. But God, we thank you for the all-sufficient merit that perfectly takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. God, help us to see that all the time. Help us to see the importance of accepting that and then representing you well in this world. God, help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.